Hello and welcome to Trendy Ways to Die, the podcast where we explore how beauty has always meant pain, and pain, given a few hundred years, usually means humor. I'm Julian, and I'd like to welcome you to our first ever episode. Uh, Just for full transparency, this is a re-recording. When I first made this episode a few weeks ago, I had never actually recorded my own voice before, and things sounded pretty awful. So now I'm back with the exact same material, but now, hopefully, much more listenable. Okay, so what is the point of this podcast? Well, I've always been a lover of history. In college, I would just soak up courses, and my favorites were the ones that focused on the lives of ordinary people, what they believed, how they dressed, what they ate, and all of the crazy reasons why. I've never really been a huge historical figures person, not really a big dates and numbers person, but, you know, tell me about the housewife in 12th century Spain, and I am there. I am there fully. I also believe in the phrase that the past is a foreign country, and I believe that to be true, with the exception that most foreign countries tend to make sense, while in my experience the past tends to be home to quite a lot of mistakes and ridiculousness. Though it's a lot easier for us to look back and see the foolishness in the past than to look around and look at ourselves and see the foolishness now. And indeed, doing that, looking back, helps you really see the modern foolishness a lot more easily. So on that theme, some of my favorite historical trends and stories center around really silly deaths. Um, So how beliefs and customs that are ridiculous by modern standards led to some pretty dire things happening. So if you're a fan of history, or if you're just, you know, a person who reads too much, you probably know, for instance, that when surgeons were first told to wash their hands, this is in the mid-1800s, many were offended at the suggestion, and they refused to do it. The explanation they gave was that all gentlemen's hands are naturally clean. They were offended at the suggestion that their hands were dirty, because at the time, medicine was exclusively white, exclusively male, upper class, and as good Victorians, they thought that dirt and disease was a problem for the lower classes. So, as expected, that sort of societal blindness had some pretty horrible results for people who underwent surgery. But as much as we look back and laugh at all that, a hundred years later, this warped idea of social class um, is still here. And we see echoes of this throughout the modern world. Uh, Think, for example, of the Karens and Gregs of the world who refuse to wear face masks in public. This is being recorded during the coronavirus pandemic, So naturally, that example is at the very front of my mind, but there are many others. You know, for instance, there's a trend right now for um, eating raw meat, and uh, it's mostly done by upper-middle-class people who want to be pure and healthy and on the very edge of, of these new health trends. But it's also very dangerous, or it can be very dangerous at times. So my hope is that by looking at the past, We can have a good time and hopefully understand a bit more about why these trends happened and how they serve psychological needs while ignoring science and logic, and how we're doing that right now. So on that note, I want to go ahead and say that I am not a professional psychologist, scientist, or even very logical person. I am also not a historian. I just have a lot of feelings. So throughout this podcast, I'm going to try to source a lot of my statements and rely on the words of experts, Many of my friends are actual experts, so I'll also try to get them on here as soon as possible, 
But given my own limitations, I fully expect to make mistakes, and I encourage you to call me out. Please be nice. Message me. I'll try to get back to you. Uh, and on that note, the reason why I am not a professional historian is that memorizing dates and names gives me a lot of anxiety. Uh, even in my own life, like, I'm that person who you need to introduce yourself to, like, four times um, before I remember your name. So I'm not a huge fan of, of dates and names, but I will try my best out of respect for the, uh, the people of olden times and for you. Okay, so for today's episode, I want to explore something in the world of fashion, but maybe a little bit different from some of the most well-known trends that we all know. There are many podcasts out there that talk about quack medical treatments and vintage fashion, and I love them all. So I'm sure that you guys are aware of the horrors of corsets, for instance, high heels back then and today, and things like, you know, white face powder, which was all the rage for hundreds of years in Europe, but which actually contained lead. And uh, lead, is, lead is pretty bad for you. It's not, it's not good for you. But today's episode is a little different. Uh, you know, accurately or not, most of these trends are identified with women, and uh, you know, that's, that's probably fair, because society has been restricting and scrutinizing women's bodies since, since forever. But I also wanted to do something for the boys, because boys love to be pretty, too. And pretty hurts. So the boy trend that I will focus on is celluloid white collars in the mid to late 1800s. Um, a nice white collar has always been identified with high status. So if you've heard the phrase white collar job, that's, uh, that's the origin of all this. And celluloid was a new technology at the time. It was a stiff, somewhat flexible early form of plastic. And collars made of celluloid became all the rage for professional men starting in the 1870s and going until at least 1920. And they were actually pretty revolutionary at the time because they were easy to clean and they were bright white. So it meant that collared shirts, which were a valuable item, or, or shirts in general, wouldn't have to be washed every day. You could simply detach your collar, wipe it off, and then hide the rest under an outer jacket and some perfume. Perfume was very popular because washing uh, was not popular. So most people back then had far fewer items of clothing than we do today, and buying and maintaining clothes would cost a lot of time and money. So naturally having clean clothes was an upper-class thing. So white collars and white collar jobs and white collar people were aligned, and male neck restriction was popular. It's still popular today in some settings, professional settings, you know, think neckties and just collared shirts in general. Um, some people may like these, but really the main reason we wear them is because we want to seem upper class, or maybe we are upper class. So that's just the background here. The issue, however, is that these, these early collars, especially celluloid collars, were quite extreme and often, um, often pretty deadly. So to kick things off, I want to refer you to two historical images. I'll try to start things off every episode with going through and looking at some contemporary media and reacting to it, because we all love reactions. YouTube taught us that. Today, both images are just straight-up ads for typical celluloid collars, so you can get an idea of just how extreme these things were. The first is pretty flamboyant, and the second is very racist, and I'll link you to both in the description. All right. So the first image I got from the library at Washington University in St. Louis, thank you library, it's a trade card, which is basically an early printed ad that would have been handed out by a store clerk, you know, like a baseball card, or included along with a product. This one was made by the Donaldson brothers, who were based in Queens in the 1890s, and yeah, let's, um, let's take a look. All right, so the ad is, um, it's quite stylish, it's drawn very precisely, it's watercolor, it depicts three very fashionable, very dandyish young men, and their proportions are really, really weird. It's very exaggerated. It's meant to be cute. 
They have very big eyes and these, these exaggerated expressions and extremely narrow legs. And, you know, let me just say, if you think fashion is interesting now, especially men's fashion, the late 19th century was just balls to the wall, aesthetically. These men are decked out in all the trends of the day, and each one is very different. Um, the center man is wearing this beautiful black dinner jacket, flamboyant two-tone shoes. He's got a top hat with a velvet wrap and a monocle. He has cream-colored gloves and a cane with metal and wood elements. He also has a huge ornamental flower on his chest. They all do. That would have been pretty common back then. Um, the man on the left is wearing a plaid Sherlock Holmes-style hunting cap with matching pants that are really cool. They're cuffed high. I would probably wear these today. Um, interestingly, Sherlock Holmes was a popular series at the time, so this actually might be a literal historical reference. Um, he also has an overcoat with these big, maybe plastic, hopefully not ivory buttons, probably expensive either way. He has gloves as well, and of course he has a large ornamental flower. And then the final man on the right, uh, he's wearing what looks like a really exaggerated bowler hat. His waist is totally snatched, like I would not be surprised if this guy was supposed to be wearing a girdle or some sort of corset. You can see he has a necktie. He has a different type of cane, the pointy flamboyant shoes and uh, narrow pants, and of course the uh, ornamental flower. But the most noticeable and notable item in these men's wardrobes, the thing that we are all being told to buy here is the collars. Obviously the proportions on this ad are very exaggerated, but the collars are stiff and they are high. They are almost like a narrow cone around the neck. Um, and you know, proportions here are pretty iffy, but I would say that these are at least five or six inches high which is pretty much the full length of a typical neck, these things would have extended all the way from your clavicle to your chin. So there's not a lot of room for movement there. Tightness in general was in vogue, so comfort clearly was not the point. The point is style and showing off. The text at the bottom of the ad says, none genuine without this, celluloid. So therefore, you need celluloid. You need it to be yourself, to be cool, to be modern. So that's the first image. Moving on to the second image, this one is from the National Museum of American History. It's also a trade card from the Donaldson Brothers in New York. It's not dated, but it could be from around the same time. And this one shows two things. One, some pretty intense racism, which I just love to gawk at. And two, it also shows the functional appeal of these collars. So the central character is a white man. He's drawn realistically. His proportions are not exaggerated. He's handsome. He's smartly dressed. But the other characters in the ad are not realistic at all. These are Chinese caricatures, and the scene takes place in a Chinese laundry. Um, even back then, laundry was very hard work, and like many hard jobs, it was largely taken up by immigrants. And the USA was not very friendly at this time to any immigrants, especially the Chinese. Just a few years earlier, Congress had passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, so suffice it to say that attitudes were pretty, pretty low. Um, they might be getting there right now in our current society, but they were very low back then. And these Chinese men are not flatteringly depicted at all. They are wearing robes, and they have these tiny claw-like hands with long nails, and they are totally bald except for long braids on the back of their heads that are sticking up, and they're wearing earrings and, and loafers, uh, and they have elongated skulls and misshapen faces, and that's really important at this time because, you know, even within universities and academic settings and medical settings, it was widely believed that the shape of the skull and the face had literal implications for somebody's intelligence and morality. You know, you could go to a doctor and get a skull examination, and they would tell you about your, your psychological problems. So um, the message here is that these are basically troglodytes, like subhuman people. They're doing their undesirable work. You see steam in the back, you see loose sheets, irons, irons that are actually made of iron that you would have heated in a fire and then ironed with. 
So this ad um, not only shows the intense racism of the time, but also points to a very significant appeal of cellulite collars. And the man in the center, so he's smartly dressed. He's holding up a big box that says celluloid cuffs and collars on it. And he is tapping it with his finger as if to say, wow, you guys are so screwed right now. Like, look what I've got. And it points to a very important element of these collars. They saved a lot of time and money. The bottom text says economical, durable, and handsome. And they were. You know, laundry was very intense work. For married men, it took up a lot of the time of housewives and daughters. And for single men in the city who are growing in population at this time, it would have been a major expense. You might have had to stand in line, and you probably would have gone to a Chinese laundry to launder your shirts and collars on a weekly basis. So the idea here is, you know, if you buy this, not only will you be handsome and smart, but you also won't have to deal with these undesirable people. And you, you can save on the expense and, and, the, and the undesirableness. So it's all very very quote-unquote progressive. Another line on the ad calls it, quote, the last invention, which, you know, hello progress. I'm so glad we figured out celluloid collars because now we don't have to do anything else. Okay, so those are our depictions, and now I want to move to a straight-up explanation of the history. First, technology. The detachable collar was an American invention that swept the world. It was one of the first. It was first uh, imagined in the 1820s by a woman, a housewife named Hannah Montague of Troy, New York, and she was essentially tired of washing her husband's shirts whenever the attached collar got dirty. So her idea was to take a thin layer of paper and cotton, and then using starch, which is from, from flour, she was able to dry it just so you could have a detachable collar that could button on the shirt. It, wouldn't, it wasn't as durable as a celluloid collar, um, but naturally it had all of the same labor-saving implications. So the idea spread really rapidly. Troy, New York actually became the hub of worldwide collar manufacturing. It was called the Collar City. These collars were more durable than older paper collars, disposable collars. And they only got more durable when in the 1870s, the first plastics were discovered. And plastics were produced from oil. They're a byproduct of oil. And one of the first options was celluloid. Um, celluloid was cheap. It was very easy to mold and it was a, very flexible. And unlike uh, paper collars or cotton and linen collars, Celluloid collars were waterproof, and they could be wiped clean very easily. They were also much, much stiffer than fabric collars, and that was a huge deal because stiffness was in vogue. And to understand why, we need to go back and understand the Victorian age. So the Victorian age to me is really a term of convenience. Queen Victoria was relevant globally, but there's also lots of other things that were happening outside of the British Empire. Uh, just repeat to yourself, the British Empire is not that important. Just kidding, it's, it's very important, but we should always try to center ourselves you know, outside, outside where power is. So the era definitionally begins with the accession of uh, Queen Victoria to the throne in 1837 and ends at her death in 1901. And aside from all the fashion trends and things like that, the era is defined and associated, number one, with industrialization and technological change, and number two, with white people going wild and committing bloody acts of murder and domination all over the world. So in the, in the USA, it was an era of technological and social progress. You know, you had, you had railroads, steam power, the Civil War, and industrialization. But it was also an era of bloody westward expansion, um, Indian removal, reconstruction, and wars with our neighbors like Mexico and Canada to secure territory. So throughout the world, empire was the rage. And the British Empire um, also expanded greatly during this time. 
They took over India, and the scramble for Africa took place, so other European powers were grabbing up land. And all of that was justified by a self-serving belief in white supremacy. So that's that's more of an aside. The real trend that we'll discuss that influences this, this trendy way to die is the huge social changes and movements uh, that happened in Europe and America. So industrialization began in Britain, but then spread worldwide, and it meant that there was a huge demand for labor in cities. So for the first time, you had the sons and daughters of rural families moving to the big city, and you also had a lot of ordinary people who were amassing fortunes. So these fortunes were huge. They were way beyond those enjoyed by the noble and mercantile classes of the prior century. So whereas in the past, you might have had plantation owners or traders or nobles who had the most money and power, these new self-made people were the new noble riche. So they did not have any social rank, but they made up for it with huge fortunes. And in addition, you had a growing middle class in cities and uh, singles living in cities with disposable income. But the problem is that there's a lot of mobility, so you may not necessarily know your neighbors. And titles of nobility as well are not nearly as important as they used to be. So without all those old systems, how do you know and let people know that you are, you know, trustworthy and respectable? And the answer, you know, just like for for all of time, is fashion. And even today, a lot of fashion is, is about showing how rich and classy you are. Um, all of this change, especially migration and immigration, is very scary and chaotic to the Victorians. So what they respond to is a really intense dedication to order and tradition and gender roles. So men and women were expected to, to adhere very rigidly to these norms. Women were in command of the home and they were not expected to, to, be work, to work or to be unaccompanied in public and uh, men would work, uh, men were not necessarily accountable to their wives or their children. Uh, it was essentially a, a, a more extreme version of the 1950s nuclear family that, that, we can, that we can remember. Showing off was important, showing your class, your social class was very important, um, and even walking around the streets on the weekend was not taken at all lightly. So entire families would spend their entire Saturday preparing and washing and laying out their clothes and then they would spend their Sunday morning dressing up as much as they could for church. The whole family would be in starched collars and corsets. And after church, they would go take a walk in the park. And this was not for exercise. It was not for the outdoors. It was to be seen. You wanted to know and, and let people know how classy you were and how your family looks great. And this is still happening today all the time. You know, I think of uh, Christmas cards. Certainly when you send one, you want to... You want people to know that you're alive, but, you know, you also want to brag a little bit. You want to let them know that your kids went to such such a college or, you know, look at how nice you look. So throughout history, we are vain people. So later on, there would be a lot of rebellion against these very proper standards and social roles. So I think of like the exploration trend of like Teddy Roosevelt or romantic literature and art that would kind of push back against all this all this stuff. But for most people until the 1920s, fashion was an essential and rigid part of life, and it could make or break your social standing. Being seen as clean, rich, and sophisticated affected who you could marry, your job, and your treatment in public. And obviously, that is still a thing today. So now, we will get to the death part. So we're pretty deep into the episode, and I haven't even discussed the death part. So here we go. There's one main problem with a celluloid collar that I will discuss now, and then a, a second problem that I found out about later that I'll discuss later. And the first one is how rigid the collar is. So typically they were, they were fastened with a string or some other tie or a rubber band, but for lower class people it was not uncommon to have a collar that was fashion, fastened with a uh, washer or some kind, of, some kind of button, a rigid item. This, combined with the rigid material, was a huge problem because if you fell asleep and bent your head in just such a way, you could suffocate or even cut off blood to your brain. And people died this way. A lot of people died. Uh, now, I know what you're thinking. 
who would fall asleep in one of these things? Um, wouldn't you just take it off? Like, why would you wear this to bed? Well, to understand that, we need to understand other, another fact, which is that the Victorians and their American counterparts drank a lot. They went hard, especially in the USA, where the quote-unquote native popular drink was not beer, which was mostly identified with Germany and German immigrants, but liquor, specifically whiskey, and they drank all day long. Drinking has been with Americans ever since our first quote-unquote foundings. The pilgrims carried more beer than water with them on their ships. Of course, that was mostly for sanitary reasons. Uh, you know, beer does not become putrid or carry disease, and there's less of a chance for waterborne illness. But it was also enjoyed quite a lot at the time, and it was common for most Americans throughout the 19th century to take a healthy swig of liquor for breakfast. Uh, quote-unquote healthy. Um, in 1790, the average American consumed about 5.8 gallons of pure alcohol per year, and that number actually went up as Americans got richer, and industrialization meant that you could actually have more liquor, because uh, you could make more, and it was cheaper, and you also had more money. So assuming 50% alcohol by volume, which is a pretty common level for, for spirits today and then, that's more than 11 gallons of, of whiskey or gin per year. And that's for the average person. So single men and upper class single men especially would have consumed a lot more. The comparison today is that we drink about 2.3 gallons of pure alcohol per year. And since beer and wine are much more popular now, most people will, will drink their alcohol in a far more sustainable and slow way. And if you think about it, this actually makes prohibition make a lot of sense. So about 20 years after Queen Victoria's death, Americans literally passed liquor prohibition as a constitutional amendment. And if you know the Constitution, you know that it's not an easy thing. It requires the consent of the majority of the states, which is not easy to get. And that's evidence that people at the time considered alcohol a menace. And um, early progressives, you know, the people who worked to end child labor and create unions, had liquor prohibition as a plank of their platform. To them, it was not only a menace, but a tool of oppression. And public drunkenness and alcoholism and drinking-fueled violence and accidents were a huge problem in America. You know, they were far a far bigger problem than they are today. So essentially, you have a bunch of factors. You have a whole bunch of young men. They are far from home in new cities. They are consuming many glasses of liquor each day in a society with huge rates of alcoholism and they are wearing rigid collars and restrictive garments to look presentable. So you have a recipe for an epidemic of suffocation. And today, a lot of people do die from alcohol poisoning and suffocation. What usually happens is that they lie down on their back and then they vomit, and then they can't wake up and clear the airway. The same thing was happening in the 19th century, except it was a little bit different, because these collars meant that instead of dying on your back, you would die slumped over in an alleyway or on a park bench. Uh, the, the bar for suffocation was made a lot lower because everyone was wearing these very rigid colors. So even back then, this wasn't as common as other methods of death by alcohol. You know, typical poisonings, the vomit thing, accidents, fights, these happened then as they do now. But this did happen quite a lot. So there's a, there's a 1914 article in the New York Times that rails about these collars and their tendency to restrict the movement of, of the throat and cause a constriction of the windpipe. And it claims that this has been theorized and, and known to be dangerous to, to a wide variety of people, not just, not just quote, drunkards. Um, there's another article, so this historian named Jerry Stanley published a book in 2003 that talks about cowboy fashion, and he says that at the time, cowboys didn't much care what style of shirt they wore, um, a dollar bought linen shirts or collars, um, but these monstrosities, which is a quote from the, from the pamphlet that he's, he's reviewing, tied around your neck, quote, like a baby's bib and had a horrid habit of choking the drunkard and cutting into one's neck on horseback. So it was well known that these were, these were pretty bad things. 
And there's also another instance in Boston in 1880 where a streetcar driver, um, streetcar streetcars, I guess, then were pulled by horses. He was the subject of attacks of dizziness and fainting. He was brought to Mass General Hospital, and it was determined that when he turned his head, his celluloid collar pressed against his carotid sinus. We would call that the carotid artery today. And, you know, he would, he would pass out because of that. So that's one cause of death from the collars. Another big issue, which I actually discovered later uh, in the process of writing the script, and so I have less to say about it, but it's still pretty horrifying, is that celluloid is highly flammable. You know, a spark could ignite a celluloid collar and really burn the wearer. Of course, the majority of furniture and clothing at this time was very easy to catch on fire. Fires in general were much more common then than now, and so it was really accepted. And people continue to wear they continued to wear these collars well into the 20th century. So only around the 1920s did these things actually become unfashionable, and it was considered just an acceptable risk that they might catch fire or choke you. So normally now I, I would want to talk about the most famous person who died this way, but unfortunately it's been really difficult for me to find cases like this, um, I, especially of famous people. I have two explanations for that, and I guess they're really more excuses than explanations. First is that though it was common and accepted um, by most people. Dying from being drunk at the time was still very shameful, and Victorians were very sensitive to shame. So I have a hunch that a lot of famous asphyxiation cases and, and dying of drunkenness cases at the time were actually reported as, say, heart attacks or other more blameless types of death. The second excuse is to note that house fires were extremely common and flammable things in households were just as common, and forensic science about fires was pretty young. So it's hard to say whether a famous burn victim died from a collar or from another item of his outfit or, say, you know, uninsulated electrical wires, uh, which were also a common thing. Look out for that in future episodes. However, I do have an adjacent story or set of stories that is not about celluloid collars, but about another celluloid product, which is billiard balls. So billiards was a very popular and common game at the time, and the way that billiard balls were made was ivory. And at the time, there was a big concern about the supply of ivory, so conservationism was just beginning at this time. So there was a concern that there would be a billiard ball shortage because people were hunting elephants to extinction. And what this caused was that a billiards manufacturer, Phelan and Colander, offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who could develop an ivory substitute that would be used in billiard balls. So supposedly that announcement lit a fire under the inventor John Wesley Hyatt, who eventually would develop celluloid to be used in collars. So in order to, to make these balls, there was very little that was done to that, to that chemical. There was no coating. All they did was really add dyes. So what would happen was somebody would drop a spark from a lighter or drop a cigarette on a billiard ball or a stack of them, and you would have a, a pretty mild explosion, like a pop or a gun clap. In fact, in 1880, there's a letter from a billiard saloon proprietor in Colorado who mentioned this explosive tendency of, of the balls and said he, he did not really care about the explosion. And in his saloon, when this happened, instantly every single man in the room pulled his gun. So, you know, uh, exploding billiard balls and, and everyone has a gun. Uh, the Victorian age was nothing if not exciting. There's also another case of the danger of celluloid, which is that it was used to make film later on. You know, it's a, it can be made to be transparent. It's a flexible plastic. And uh, behind the, the light bulb of projectors in cinemas, celluloid often caught on fire. And cinema fires were very, very common back then. In fact, in, uh, in Quebec, in Canada, by law until 1967, children were not allowed to attend cinemas at all. Not because of, you know, violence or sexuality or any of the, the later panics about cinemas, but because there was a major celluloid fire 20 years before that killed 77 children. So celluloid was a small menace. And even though it was the height of sophistication and technology at the time, and quite trendy, it was also a great way to die. 
So celluloid is this episode's trendy way to dye. And now finally, I'd like to talk about how celluloid is still with us today. So luckily, it is no longer widely used. It has been outmoded by the development of other flexible plastics without the tendency to explode. Um, so in the 50s, film uh, was replaced with acetate film. It was called safety film because it didn't actually burn. Um, and today, the only place you are really going to find celluloid is in table tennis balls, musical instruments, and guitar picks. And all of those things are fairly small. They are not held close to the body for a long period of time, and they're pretty unlikely to encounter fire. Uh, and also the amount of celluloid used is too small to cause a fire or, or burn somebody. So there's, there's much less of a risk of, of death. Additionally, before we had the technology to get rid of celluloid, fashion stepped in. So in the 1920s, there was a youthful rebellion against the very rigid Victorian idea of fashion for both men and women. And a lot of that was actually brought on by World War One. So, you know, soldiers uh, wearing starched collars and tight girdles were not effective soldiers. So a lot of athletic clothing, clothing and military clothing made its way into common usage. And so by that time for men, well, for women first, corsets went away. And for men, detached and rigid collars became unfashionable. There was also a lot of mechanization in laundry, so washing clothes became less expensive. And the typical collar of the 1920s instead was the button-down, which we still wear today. It's a soft collar that is attached to the shirt um, by stitching, and then it has buttons which attach the flaps to the collar. So suffice it to say that as, as a society, we've gotten a whole lot better at dressing for comfort and filtering out hazardous and dangerous materials. And men's fashion in particular has come to emphasize uh, comfort. So women in America still wear high heels and sometimes corsets, but this is almost always a matter of preference. It's not really an expectation. And it's pretty unusual for men, especially men who don't want to, to wear um, uncomfortable clothing. That said, we probably should not look back on all these Victorian dandy men and their choking collars with such disdain. Uh, there are still plenty of ways in which men in our society uh, suffer for fashion. And these days, it's a lot more about absence than, than addition. So for example, take sunscreen. You know, it's, it's a pretty much universally agreed to preventative measure for skin cancer, but in 2016, according to the CDC, just 15% of men in America have used sunscreen in the past year, um, compared to 70% of women. So these numbers are both a lot lower than they should be, but they are especially low for men, and they are lowest for the people who are most likely to be out working in the sun. So construction workers, police, manly men uh, don't wear sunscreen. So that's an example of these men who are suffering for fashion or for a vision of manliness. And you know, it's not as direct as being choked by your collar, but it's, it's kind of similar. It's not a logical or scientific decision, it's a psychological decision. Similarly, I wanted to talk about the elephant in the room, which is face masks. So we are in the coronavirus pandemic after all, and many folks on the right side of the political spectrum, especially men, are rejecting the idea that they, that they should wear cloth or N95 face masks, even though these masks protect everybody against the spread of diseases like the coronavirus. Um, so for reasons of comfort or manliness or style or quote-unquote freedom, uh, they are ignoring facts and logic, uh, you know, for the look. In fact, the president of the United States himself uh, famously doesn't wear a mask, and he's famously you know, you might consider Donald Trump to be a modern-day dandy in a certain sense. He has a very particular sense of style, and he wears clearly skin products and probably quite a lot of hair products, and he has refused uh, to wear a mask. So the most powerful man um, in our country is joining in this long tradition of choosing the look over logic. So that's today's episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed it and that it came out okay. Um, I'm excited to live into the future with you and, you know, recall this symposium in 2060. And uh, we can talk about what kind of horrific fashion trends we are wearing today, because the truth is that we can't necessarily know what things will be barbaric and dangerous. So thank you uh, for listening to Trendy Ways to Die.
Trendy Ways to Die is hosted by me, Julian, with frequent contributions from my dear friends and people I admire. I also write, edit, record, and mix the show, the latter parts of which I am so sorry for. Our theme music is Hungarian Rag, recorded in 1914 by Pietro Diero. You can find it on the Internet Archive. I would have liked to include some more contemporary music, for instance, something recorded after 1920. However, the current state of U.S. copyright law is pretty terrible. If you really want to get a sense of what I'm going for, listen to Suffer for Fashion by Of Montreal and imagine my sweet voice puttering away about trendy ways to die. Thank <laughs> you.